This is SG2 Perspectives, a conversation with SG2 experts and industry thought leaders about the biggest trends in healthcare and what we expect that's going to mean for the future of healthcare delivery. We're suffering from a tyranny of here and now. There are so many issues of operational capacity, trying to create better and sustainable revenue mix amongst the organizations. Trying to reconcile this longer-term perspective with the near-term perspective is a real challenge. Welcome to SG2 Perspectives. My name is Jamie Sage, and I'm your host for this episode. I'm joined by my colleagues, Jennifer O'Connor, Mike Humphrey, and Brian Esser. Jennifer, Mike, and Brian recently had the opportunity to host a joint meeting between chief strategy officers and chief financial officers. And we're here today to learn some of the interesting insights and takeaways from that meeting, even some of the sidebar conversations that they had with some of our members. So let's get started. It's always good to hear from the members what their biggest challenges are, what big projects they're working on. So Jennifer, what was top of mind? What did we hear from the CSOs and the CFOs at this joint network meeting? Let's start with you. So we definitely heard challenges, I'll call them tensions, about meeting growth goals. Given the current landscape, the staffing shortages mean they're closing beds and closing services. So that makes it tough to hit growth goals. So definitely workforce was top of mind. Several mentioned that they are finally getting back to sorting out their merger activity pre-pandemic and definitely a flare around adjusting service line structures to stretch across these newly formed regions and systems. So lots of work there. I picked up a real sense that providers are feeling like they're playing catch up. Disruptors like Amazon and CVS and Optum weren't running daily COVID command centers the last two years. They were out making strategic moves and investments. Our health systems feel a little behind. They feel pressure to respond. And obviously, finances are tough right now. That makes that challenging. I was pleasantly surprised, though. I would say never count health systems out. UC Irvine noted they stood up 100 clinics and have been working on patient experience. University of Kentucky mentioned setting up a new subsidiary anchored around their community physicians. Definitely good things going on and investments being made from our health system providers. That's great. Mike, what did you take away from the CSO intro conversations? I'll build on some comments that Jennifer mentioned. We're suffering from a tyranny of here and now. There are so many issues of operational capacity, trying to create better and sustainable revenue mix amongst the organizations. Trying to reconcile this longer-term perspective with the near-term perspective is a real challenge for them. And in many ways, while this was a meeting between CSOs and CFOs, those financial and strategic-oriented individuals, a lot of the issues that are gating their work, challenging their movement forward, are the operational issues. Perhaps we could have had another persona join this conversation to address some of these issues, but it is really this challenge of prioritization and execution in a near term, much like was learned through COVID, but I think the dynamics are more differently now with the financial constraints that we're seeing posted for a lot of organizations. Brian, anything different from the chief financial officers? I would agree with a lot of what Jennifer and Mike just said. I'm thinking payers themselves and the payer behavior going on in the market, as well as this overall shift towards more governmental payment. So payer mix erosion continues to steamroll ahead. And then the consumer dynamic and where does consumerism fit in? And can we get ahead of that? Where does price transparency, costs on the employer side all factor into the way health systems are perceived by their stakeholders in local markets? Great, great insight. One of the things, Brian, that always comes up in the CFO landscape is this alternative revenue streams piece. What are some of the big takeaways that you heard through the conversations with the CFOs on those alternative revenues? 
It's an interesting topic. The idea of alternative revenue creation has always been out there. The question is how much risk and reward is the organization willing to take on and expect of these overall efforts? So various approaches, everything from not basic, but more nuts and bolts of monetizing assets like revenue cycle, HR, other staffing type solutions, all the way up to trying to monetize data, research. We heard from Mass General Brigham on that, as well as just true venture type work. Jennifer, maybe your thoughts here on Advocate Aurora's dynamics, but a need for this, and I think the urgency to create new revenue is there. The question is how much is a true and fair expectation for that new revenue to offset the core clinical revenue? Yeah, Brian, I thought your comment from the CFO perspective, we've always got to have our risk reward glasses on. Is this really something we should be doing or should we just stick to our knitting is a common question. For the CSOs who were there for this panel, it was a reinforcement on their role that they really understand the purpose of the organization, the strategic direction of the organization, and they can help ensure that when we do decide to pursue these alternative revenue models, it's a fit with what we're trying to do. I thought Ashner did a really good example with their safe source direct business. So they basically decided to onshore manufacturing. That's a pretty bold move. There's not a lot of that happening, but it wasn't for the purpose of getting into a new revenue stream per se. It's that the supply chain disruption during the pandemic taught them that they wanted to be more self-reliant. With the right partner, they've stepped in. They're starting small, just two things, gloves and masks that they're going to produce. They figured out they can do it and do it at a profit. So it's core to the business that they started with. And yes, it does also give them a diversified revenue stream that isn't reliant on commercial insurance payments or government insurance payments. That's a really nice story around alignment. And then to your question, Brian, around what we heard from Advocate Aurora Enterprises, Scott Powder was there. And the other way we see CSOs getting involved in this conversation around alternative revenue is what we heard from Scott. After 20 years with the organization and much of that as the chief strategy officer, he was tapped to lead what's now called Advocate Aurora Enterprises, which is their effort around alternative revenue strategies. He really has the relationships across the health system to help tie these new businesses in this portfolio they're building of things that have different revenue streams, different business models. He can help bridge and tie back to the organization. Hopefully it all scales to good effect and it'll need to. Scott shared they have a goal of being 10 to 15% of the total operating cash flow for Advocate Aurora Health by 2025. That's a pretty big critical goal and keeping the sense of purpose and alignment is going to be important as they move forward with that. I think that's an excellent point, Jennifer, that purpose and alignment. It's whatever you're doing in an alternative, does it also support your core is a critical piece. One of the other things that we've seen on the revenue shifting is also looking at the site of care shifts. At the CSO breakout, we had Mayo Health talk about their journey on care in the home. Mike, share with us some of the key takeaways from that and how that's serving as an alternative revenue source for them. It was really interesting. We were really nicely paired between the CFO and the medical director for this service. What we found was a real passion around the ability to care for patients in the right setting. There is the cultural aspect and the comfort of having patients treated in their own home. Certainly the satisfaction that both providers see how that as well as the patients and your family was critical. 
the things that Mayo pointed out that might be considerations for anyone looking at care at home across that spectrum is that there is a true technical capability and capacity required as well as workforce and the ability to find and train a workforce that is culturally as well as clinically oriented as Mayo is, that that was one of their key offerings or suggestions that you work very hard to do. Mayo shared with us a couple of points. So through their efforts, they've saved around 3,000 bed days. And getting back to the satisfaction, I think 92% of the patients responded that they would highly recommend the program. So success on both the impact of capacity and the overall patient satisfaction. The couple of warning things that they highlighted to us in addition to the technology and to the workforce is the regulatory environment. And they're working hard with a coalition of other providers to help inform CMS and the government around the benefits of this. So hopefully as this evolves, it will continue to create incentives to move into this What was really nice is that the engagement with these patients not only started perhaps if it was post-acute episode, but oftentimes in advance of that so that this was really a seamless continuum. There was an image that they also shared that I think many of us have seen images around EICUs, that control center, that monitoring, that central aspect. This takes an entirely approach on steroids to do that same type of care. And given the distances, not just interest system, but even if this were to be scaled nationally, it requires a lot of talent and technology to do that. A lot of great successes in this, but also some good offerings in terms of considerations for others who are venturing into this, certainly around that technology and certainly around the workforce. Jennifer, anything different to add in terms of takeaways from the Mayo presentation? I found it really interesting that they were open and honest about the fact that they piloted Hospital at Home for a year before they were really convinced that they could be really successful and scale this. We're still in early adopter phase. There's still lots to learn. And this probably isn't for the faint of heart is the first thing that you hear when you listen to them acknowledge that. But some of what they were testing in that year of piloting, I found really fascinating. And they purposefully did it in two different Mayo markets, Jacksonville, down south in Eau Claire, up in the Midwest. The reality about the technology you need and the workforce you need, how they solved for those needs in different markets was wildly different. In Eau Claire, 70% of what they were providing was basically insourced meaning it was coming from various parts of Mayo. When they got to Jacksonville, it's 70% outsourced. They flipped it. And they really could find the partners they needed there and train them to meet their standards so they could have a broader network. And it didn't all have to come from Mayo. That was an interesting lesson as we think about what it's going to take to set up these networks for care at home and how different it might look market to market. Yeah, it's an interesting landscape to be sure. Another topic that we've seen that is strategic and has a different revenue stream is the director-employer contracting. Brant, in your CFO breakout, you had some conversations around direct-to-employers. Yeah, the direct-to-employer topic seems to cycle a bit through the industry every three to five years, but it's really taking on a new life as of late, especially during the pandemic. And as we emerge from this, coupled with the idea of talent and how do you attract the talent just from a general employer mix and the overall cost of healthcare as a line item expense for self-insured employers. We had a great panel. We had a local business coalition leader from Pittsburgh area. We had Boeing and their HR team and lead who had brokered the direct-to-employer deals across the country. And then we had Johns Hopkins and their room. And this panel discussion around what does it mean and what is the overall level of urgency for employers today? 
And it does seem across the board from small, medium and large organizations, this idea of the need to rein in healthcare costs systematically is increasing. There is an idea of expense pressure going on there, but there's also coupled, and we've heard this from interviews with HR leads across the country, that you're sitting between the C-suite and the overall expense side versus the employees. And how do you attract that talent and keep them happy in their benefit selection and options for medical care? Trying to thread that needle uh, from an HR point of view continues to be a challenge, but we are seeing more and more progressive direct-to-employer action happening. Typically, larger systems are more in the weeds and ahead in this curve. We are seeing smaller organizations really making inroads across the spectrum of direct-to-employer, everything from on-site clinics, occupational health, things that may be easier to operationalize quickly, moving up to centers of excellence, things that have been in the market for a long time, but building upon those and really trying to attract both local and regional and even national volumes that we've seen from the Cleveland Clinics and the Mayos in the past, this idea of how do we advance that globally towards a total cost of care discussion. And that total cost of care and the needs of the employee base will vary. If you have a young, healthy, white-collar employee base, that's different than a manufacturing company. But understanding from an employer, what are you looking to do? How do we partner holistically? How do we enable the provider to get access to the claims on the employer side so we can understand spend, understand trend, pharmaceutical, where are they looking to really make inroads? And then how do you gain the trust of the employer and that leadership team, as well as the employees themselves? So they feel okay, maybe narrowing that network and partnering with you as a provider directly and feel the quality and outcomes are going to be there. And it's still a quality and outcomes game at the end of the day, but having that two-way dialogue and understanding from an employer point of view and a buying perspective, what does it mean to advance these kind of relationships will be important. And employers are open to the discussion, maybe more so now than they ever have been. Brian, I have to ask you, as I saw the news on the wires, did Amazon's employer offering Amazon Care come up at this session? And can't help but wondering what people would be saying if the news this week that it's shuttering had broken when we were having this meeting. Yes, the Amazon Cares discussion just happened. I think it would have been an interesting point. I don't think it takes the pressure away, but also, as all the articles are saying, similar to Haven, Amazon, did they underestimate the complexity of healthcare or not? And there is just this space that the handoff between virtual, primary care in person, to surgical, to medically complex. All of that needs a continuum, a system of care, as we would say here at SG2, that's interwoven in a meaningful way and is meeting the patients and the employers where they're at. We'll see. Yeah. Does the acquisition of one medical just mean they're focused elsewhere? Maybe. Only your crystal ball will tell you, right? That's right. What else did you take away? What were some of those insights that maybe we haven't yet discussed from that joint meeting? We also had a panel on innovation, which followed after diversification, which I think was a nice pairing. I was impressed by the fact that we had two organizations, Banner and then Medical University of South Carolina, that in a sense had a point that was interesting when it comes to innovation. Is it top-down? Is it bottom-up? And I think we had a nice balance because Banner had more of a top-down, and there was a belief that, in a sense, that provided them greater focus in terms of going after those ideas that would generate the best return in alignment with their strategies. Whereas, on the other hand, with MUSC, the CSO pointed out there, it also has a strong cultural impact. It's one of their pillars, so it's strategically important, but they were very much bottom up. This idea of allowing employees to bring ideas forward to solve situations, have that be sort of open and evaluated by a broad group of constituents. It was interesting because the impact had both bringing new ideas and innovation to the forefront, but also really leveraging and empowering your employees to believe they had a strong hand and voice and because of their firsthand experience and what they were doing could really help solve some of those issues. It really struck me the two different approaches that the organizations took. 
Mike, I thought we saw that play out in some of what Banner and MUSC discussed. And that top-down idea, Banner has been really active with their innovation fund. They've put significant investment into it. That's sort of more of a top-down approach. But it's created an ecosystem for them. The people they're investing in have become contacts and help them look for and vet new opportunities of things to pilot. It allowed them to create a very interesting ecosystem, which I liked. And on the MUSC front, kudos to them. I have not heard of an organization that has their track record and success actually making good on the ideas that employees bring forward. Sarah shared that 60 some percent of the ideas that get brought forward under their innovation efforts actually are acted upon by MUSC. That's a phenomenal number and I think a real credit to their commitment to making this bottom up. If you want that to be true, we need to send a signal to people that when they push good ideas, we actually act on them. So I thought they both really demonstrated their approaches really well. And I would throw out maybe a few other topics that came up. This idea of strategic capacity and how do we get ahead of that. UAB was there talking about how do we either pivot and build out new primary care or other offerings in the face of this workforce issue. We're seeing a huge pullback on capital deployment. One, just because the market is frothy and interest rates are up and it's challenging to think about how do we deploy that. But secondarily, we've seen different reports. If we deploy the capital and build, can we actually staff these new sites at all? And if not, what's the good of it? I think there's a strategic capacity issue out there. Maybe on the concern side, just overall covenant pressure, especially on the bonds, all the different ratios, cash on hand, debt service coverage, all these things are continuing to weigh on the CFO's minds. And recognizing we dove into this slightly in this meeting and then built on it in the SG2 Exec Summit is this idea of how do you balance the CFO's pressure points as they look holistically at the operating company, the investment arm, and the liquidity side versus the CSOs who are often tasked with growth and capturing market. And how do we balance that and lean into each other so each side understands the pressure points and we can work more collaboratively in a way that really opens communication channels. We had Michael Krauss at Ohio Health bring up this idea of fusion teams and really getting finance and strategy teams organized in a way that you can take the big rocks on in a meaningful way and get rid of all the loose ends and give them the ability to innovate within those fusion teams more creatively. I expect more of that to happen, but I think ultimately all the larger systems and advanced systems are really thinking about CFOs and CSOs and their teams working much more collaboratively in the future. That's great insight, Brian. From the CSO perspective, what do the CSOs need to do differently to work more closely with the CFOs in that development, Jennifer? Step one is just some of the interactions like we saw at this meeting. They often see flip sides of the coin of some of these big, important issues. But I think at the end of the day, they're both pulling in the same direction for the good of the organization. We talked a bit at Exec Summit that followed this CSO-CFO meeting about strategy learning to speak the language of finance, understanding the financial pressures that exist today and the realities of what we can and can't do investment-wise, and sort of learning to speak finance's language putting these ideas or these investment requests in a lens that fits with what finance is trying to do to safeguard the organization. So I think that's part of it. Brian can probably speak to that better than I can, though. What does that ultimately checklist look like for a CSO to consider? And it's going to be things like, does this require new debt to be taken out? Is there a new burden placed on our workforce? Along those lines. And we can put that out there and it's available. But I think that's right, Jennifer, this idea of translating what the CSOs view as their goal and their strategic aims into a palatable business case uh, that the CFOs can react to in a way that's not going to put undue pressure on their team as they're wrestling with things that the CSOs may not have to deal with in their day to day. So it's just that. But we're seeing more of that. 
that and that collaboration we saw during the pandemic with the crisis teams and just all arms, COOs, medical, everybody coming into the room to handle the crisis. How do we just leverage that team and that unity that was built into this now stabilization and growth phase out of the pandemic? building on those foundations that are there by recognizing there's pressure points on both sides that may not be visible on the surface. Jamie, picking up on something Mike said earlier, there's this relationship between CSO-CFO, which has gotten increasingly closer. But given the capacity constraints, now throw in the COO into those conversations and how do the three of them really work together? Because if you look at what organizations are telling us they feel like they need to do right now, they need to hit some volume recovery, short-term growth numbers today in the face of ever-shifting capacity and workforce constraints, that's a really interesting equation that it probably takes the three of them to solve. I know as we've been working on short-term solutions here at SG2, we've really been trying to triangulate those three perspectives and say, how can we monitor capacity, project short-term growth, and engage patients digitally, which can be very flexible so that we can try to navigate that landscape? I think those three are going to keep working really closely in the next 12 months. Any final words, Mike? Any words of wisdom to close us out? Based upon the comments that we heard from Jennifer and Brian, the one thing I did hear in the hallway, which I think is an interesting thing around the role of a CSO, is the elasticity of the role. And and by that, it seems like CSO's jobs are being asked to be long-term. They're increasingly shorter term. Now we're introducing transformation in many ways into their role. We talked about some of those opportunities that are related to diversification, innovation. Just how much can a CSO really take on and continue to drive these types of efforts forward? I heard a couple of conversations around folks with sort of this identity crisis with what their role is. And as we've talked about all these issues and challenges, it can represent both an incredible professional development opportunity for that role, but it also can maybe add on more than is capable of any one individual, which gets back to Jennifer's point that addressing this through multiple skill sets and colleagues is probably going to be the best long-term solution there. So that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much, Jennifer, Brian, Mike, for sharing your insights, sharing some of the stories that we heard from our clients and members who really know that our audience appreciates hearing some of these interesting insights. So thank you so much for your time today. Thanks so much for listening to SG2 Perspectives. As always, I really value your feedback, input, comments, or ideas for episodes, and you can reach us at sg2perspectives at sg2.com. Additionally, I recommend that you check out some of the other Vizient podcasts, which cover a range of clinical and operational areas. Those can all be found at vizientinc.com backslash podcasts. Mm-hmm.